Welcome to a special edition of Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. I'm Tom Williams. I'm glad you've joined me on air and on Zoom this evening. In this hour, we'll be highlighting LA Theater Works, which can be heard on UPR on Friday evenings at uh, nine o'clock. Susan Albert Lowenberg, founder, host, and producing director of LA Theater Works, uh, is joining me to talk about uh, producing theater for radio, the role of the arts uh, during these pandemic times, and other topics. And we're going to hear sound clips from several productions from LA Theater Works. Susan Albert Lowenberg is founder and producing director of LA Theater Works, as I said, a nonprofit media arts and theater organization. And uh, she's produced award winning radio dramas, plays, and films in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and London. Under her supervision, LA Theatre Works has created the largest library of plays and audio in the world, garnering numerous awards from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Writers Guild, the American Library Association, Publishers Weekly, and others. A graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, she's served on innumerable boards and panels, including National Endowment for the Arts, California Arts Council, the Fund for Independence and Journalism in Washington, D.C., and was co-chair of the League of Producers and Theaters of Greater Los Angeles. So Susan Lohenberg, uh, welcome uh, to the program. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. This is uh, kind of unusual, uh, I guess, fitting that we talk about LA Theater Works. You do a lot of creative things with the company. So we're, uh, we're trying out a hybrid broadcast and, uh, and Zoom webinar event. I should say at the beginning, uh, for those joining us, uh, you can get questions uh, through to Susan Lohenberg using the uh, Q&A feature um, on this Zoom webinar, or you can use our regular email for Access Utah, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. So Susan Lohenberg, um, were you always into theater? Did you grow up going to, to plays? Yeah, I was always interested in, well, I was interested in acting. I wanted to be an actress. And in fact, my dad's best friend was a very prominent director and he started putting me in he directed craft theater and u.s steel hour this this is gonna this is gonna date de definitely date me <laughs> but uh when i was about 12 years old i think i did my first show and at that time in television you went out live <laughs> wow so those shows you went out live so you had to have a lot of i mean i was a kid so it didn't i really i just did it you know and um, I, I kept performing until I was uh, in my late 20s, early 30s. And then I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And I knew that I wanted to produce. And so that's what I did. Yeah. What did, what was, what was the attraction uh, in performing? What did you, I, I imagine you get a high, you get a thrill being on the stage. What do you, what do you, what do you get being on the stage? Well, it's just so much fun. I mean, it's, it's a, it's difficult and it's anxiety producing, obviously, you know, I, you know, I can remember standing backstage waiting for my entrance and thinking, oh my God, you know, <laughs> am I going to make it? Uh, but it's, you know, it was just fun. And for me as a producer, of course, it's been invaluable because I feel that I'm able to get inside the artist's head because I've been there. Right. And, and that really is helpful when you're yeah. talking to artists or trying to get something from an artist or explain something to an artist that that may be delicate. I, I kind of remember what it felt like. And that helps me a lot. Yeah. So at a certain point you decided I want to produce. So uh, how do you make that transition? Actually, that's that's not quite true. Ah. I sort of fell into it. I fell into producing. Um, what happened was I, I remember I was, um, I actually was, had decided I was going to be a historian and I enrolled at UCLA and I got, had my, from, to get my master's degree and then I was going to get my PhD in history. And I was at a party one night and a young man from New York that I had been introduced to had come out, Robert Greenfield, to head up uh, the smaller theater at the Mark Taper Forum. And we chatted, we were chatting and he said to me, you know, uh, when I was in New York, I worked in prisons and I did improvisation with, at, with, uh, with the inmates and so on. And I was, you know, I probably had a little too much to drink. And I said, oh, that sounds great. I'd love to do something like that. And six months later, I found myself six months pregnant in the county jail 
in Los Angeles giving improvisational workshops to inmates. Wow. And then a group of us kind of coalesced around that idea. And we sort of started to form an informal organization. And I said, oh, I'll, you know, I'll head it. I'll do it. You know, I'll, I'll be the front person. And of course, I'd never done anything like that before. And uh, eventually, we began to get a bit of a reputation for this work and decided to make it a formal organization. Uh, a friend of mine incorporated us as a nonprofit. And I will never forget flying up to Sacramento to give a presentation to the California Arts Council for our first grant. I mean, I barely knew what a grant was. I did get the money and uh, we were off and running. Uh, I want to pick that up, obviously, but I want to go back to the work in the jail. What that's got to I don't know how that comes about. Hey, you want to go to the jail and teach improv? What uh, does somebody t- t- tell you that? And it must seem but, intimidating before you go. Yeah, we were actually called before we were LA Theater Works. We called ourselves artists in prison. And I cannot remember how we contacted the county jail, but somehow we made contact with the jail, and they agreed to let us come in and do these workshops. And eventually, we uh, began working in the federal prison. Uh, system. We were at Terminal Island Federal Prison for a number of years. It's co-ed minimum security federal prison. We were at the California Institution for Women, at the California Institution for Men. Um, We were, and then we sort of expanded to younger people and we were working in the juvenile court schools. And we, we developed, we, we became a very, a major organization doing that work. And uh, in fact, Years later, um, the uh, I served on the um, on the on the on the the board of Federal Prison Industries uh, in the Clinton administration. I did it for the entire Clinton administration, and uh, that was very very interesting um, thing that happened to me. Um, so it sort of extended my work in the prisons. But uh, we did wonderful projects. In fact, we even were able to furlough the prisoners at Terminal Island. They were furloughed to come and perform at UCLA. Wow. Uh, so we did some very interesting work with uh, with our with our students. Yeah. What? Yeah. What does it do for the inmates? What uh, What do you think it uh, does for them? Oh my God. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, just having that outlet, that creative outlet, that way to express yourself um, in a way that's positive and creative and, and, uh, and people loved it. And we would, what we would do is we had the group of, a, we, we had different, different areas of expertise in our group. Uh, there was a play, we had a playwright, Dory Baisley, two directors, uh, a set designer, a costume designer. Um, and we would bring in actors occasionally to work with the inmates and we would do improvisation and develop, and Dory would write down what was going on and kind of for, form it into a play. Or, and so we, would, we did many creative things uh, with, with the artists um, and, the, and the inmates. And they loved it. I mean, it was just a way to kind of forget you were in prison for three hours, you know, and focus on something that was very positive and called on you. And and people were able to express what they were feeling. You know, there are a lot of feelings, needless to say, that go on when you're in a prison. And and how do you express those feelings in a positive way? Mm. And this was a positive way. Does this kind of work still go on in prisons? Yes. Oh, yeah. Many, many organizations do it now. Yeah. And I like to think that we were, you know, one of the pioneers. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's uh, hear our first uh, clip. And for those on Zoom, you'll see it as well. Uh, this is a piece that Spectrum News uh, did, profiling LA Theater Works. Um, so it gives us an idea of, uh, of how, at least in normal times, LA Theater Works staged your shows. Later in the program, we'll talk about how creative you guys have gotten uh, during COVID times. So let's let's hear this uh, segment. Oh, 
Oh, don't mind me. I'm just listening to a play. I'm Tara Lynn Wagner in Westwood, where this weekend LA Theatre Works is recording the play Viet Gone in front of a live audience. It's the latest in their extensive library of audio recordings of the best titles in American and global theater. A good play leaves audiences hanging on every word, which is why LA Theatre Works makes sure every word is captured and preserved. Greg Watanabe is one of the actors who will be stepping up to the mic during this weekend's live performances at UCLA's James Bridges Theatre. He's done these recordings before and says as an actor, it's a very different experience. Because you need to put all of your focus into the microphone. And so it makes your listening to your partner like the most important thing. Listening is everything to LA Theatre Works, a company that originally set out to produce stage plays around Los Angeles. One day Richard Dreyfus, who was a member of the group, said, you know, I've always wanted to do a play on the radio. And I said, that's an interesting idea. They went on to record a 14-hour reading of Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt and caught the attention of the likes of NPR and the BBC. We were off and running, and 500 and some plays later, here we are. By here, producing director Susan Albert Lowenberg means everywhere. There's the weekly public radio show, plus their recordings are broadcast daily in China and streamed all over the world. This is our library. Their extensive library contains all the greats. Wendy Wasserstein. But Susan is just as interested in amplifying what she calls exciting new voices, like Kui Gwyn, who wrote Viet Gone. I saw it in New York at Manhattan Theatre Club and I thought, I've got to record this play. Some of the plays are recorded in studio, but seven times a year, they record them in front of a live audience. The challenge, Susan says, is taking something that's meant to be a visual medium and making it come alive using just sound. For that, she relies not just on the actors, but also Foley artists. It's like an, watching an old-fashioned radio show, except it's very, very, very high-tech. For the live audience in the theater, it's a unique experience as well, one that Greg says requires them to use their imagination. This is, is it has a much more demanding participatory element that I think that people really appreciate, and they feel like they're kind of like, on it. Browsing through the titles, Susan sees the library as their contribution to theater history, a way to preserve the material and expose it to a much wider audience. There are many people who've never seen a live show. They don't have access to theater. That's the beauty of it. You can enjoy theater anytime, anyplace, anywhere when it's an audio recording. Giving new meaning to the Bard's famous line, lend me your ears. So uh, if you just joined us, by the way, you're listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. You can hear us uh, over the air. You can hear us at upr.org. Um, and right now we're on Zoom as well. By the way, uh, if you're listening and want to jump over to Zoom to, to listen to this program and see us, um, you can uh, go to upr.org and uh, get the information there. So uh, Susan Lohenberg, this idea came from Richard Dreyfus, the Richard Dreyfus. Yes. Well, let, let me go back in history. We were artists in prison. Gradually, we segued as a company from working exclusively with inmates to creating plays with people in the community and eventually to producing professional theater in Los Angeles. And we were very successful. Uh, we were one of the major theaters in Los Angeles. One day I get a call from a journalist uh, and the wife of Rene Aubergenois, the great actor. Her name is Judith Aubergenois. And she said, there are a group of actors in Los Angeles who are famous because of film and television, um, but, and they're theater people. And they're, they really wanna form a theater company in LA. And I said, well, who are they? And she said, Richard Dreyfus, John Lithgow, Julie Harris, uh, Marsha Mason, on and on, 34 of the most famous actors in America. And I'm like going like, what is this? <laughs> she said, we really, we'd love to work with you and be part of LA Theater Works and form a company and do theater in LA. Well, I just thought it was, I thought, oh, you know, this is just some 
fantasy and people aren't going to follow through and so on. And she kept after me. And finally, I got this idea. I thought, well, I know how to put an end to this because I really didn't believe that anybody wanted to really do this. I said, well, everybody has to kick in $6,000 if we do this. <laughs> and I thought, well, that'll be the end of it. And of course, everybody <laughs> kicked in $6,000 and we were off and running. And we started doing things, reading plays. We had a big benefit. We um, but we did. We weren't able to. We didn't actually raise money for a theater theater. And everybody was very busy. They were doing film and television. And one day, Richard Dreyfus, who was part of the group, said, "You know, I've always wanted to work on the radio." And I said, "Well, I know the woman who runs the public radio station um, KCRW here in LA. Let me speak to her." And I called Ruth Seymour. And she absolutely jumped on it. She thought it was a great idea. And then we decided we wanted to do a very big project to launch this. And we decided we wanted to do a novel, a great American novel. And I have always loved Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt. It's just something that I have always responded to. And I thought Ed Asner would be a great Babbitt. Anyway, a year and a half later, we had recorded a 14-hour book, word for word, with Ed Asner as Babbitt and the entire company of 34 actors playing all the other parts in narration. Ruth debuted as a 14-hour marathon on Thanksgiving Day in 1985. Wow. And that was it. It exploded. NPR got in touch with us. The BBC got in touch with us. It became this huge hit. We ended up, um, NPR aired it uh, nationally, and the BBC offered to come over and pay for everything, being their best directors, and do two recordings with us, Arthur Miller's The Crucible and Eric Bentley's docudrama about the McCarthy era, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been? They came over, we did the two recordings, and we've never looked back, 500 and 30, 40 plays later, here we are. And um, many, many co-productions subsequently with the BBC over the years. So it was, um, that's what happened. It just, it just took off. Yeah, that's amazing. What, what do you, what do you think was the spark? What, because, you know, you could have predicted, okay, 14 hours <laughs> straight. It is a public radio audience, right? But 14 hours straight, Sinclair Lewis, not the most well-known, a wonderful writer, right? Babbitt, a wonderful book. But why do you think it hit? Well, it was a wonderful recording. And it was, and, and she did it on Thanksgiving Day, you know, and it was a great gimmick. Ruth always had a flair for the, you know, for, for what would attract immediate media attention, which it did. Um, and it just, it just kind of, it was a grand, grand project, you know, and I think it was a great way to kind of give us a terrific send off. So this, and we attracted a lot of press, you know, all over the country. Yeah. yeah. So this was the whole book, I guess. The entire book word for word. Yeah. So an early audio book, uh, but very deluxe, right? These are the top, not just one person doing all the voices. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what what were your original goals? So that that hit NPR showed interest. You thought, okay, this has legs. We can do a theater for radio. What was what were the goals? Yeah, I mean, then we um, then what happened was that we said, okay, we're going to do more recordings after the BBC. And Ed Asner, um, sorry, something's going on here that shouldn't be. <laughs> um, uh, sorry about that. Um, so then Ed Asner called me one day and he said, I have a friend who's staying at the Doubletree Hotel. It's a new hotel in Santa Monica and they need some publicity and so forth. I think we should do something with the hotel. Um, and, um, and so uh, I'm sorry, my, my phone is gone off and I don't know why. Okay. Um, so, he kept bothering me. He kept bothering me. He wouldn't let, let it go. And I thought, I don't want to do something in a hotel. Anyway, I finally, finally said, okay, Ed, I'll meet your, I'll meet the people and I'll meet your friend. We ended up, we had a terrific marketing manager at the hotel and they had just begun to open and get started and so forth. And they needed something. 
we ended up doing plays in the in the hotel we eventually would it seated 400 people we had people lined up around the block waiting for seats to get in we ended up do there we were there for about 10 years we did 7 to 10 plays a year always sold out and that was it we never looked back and then we went to another venue the Skirball Cultural Center for 10 years and now we're at UCLA we've been there for 7 or 8 years um, and we have a faithful audience. There are people that have been with us for 30 years since we were at, at, at the guest quarters. And uh, we have loyal subscribers and they just, um, they love coming to watch us record. It's kind of like watching a, 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 a television show being made. If you've ever been, you know, if anybody's ever been a studio audience, it's the same thing. Uh, we have microphones. The actors work with scripts. Um, they talk right into the microphone. Uh, they don't look at one another. Uh, and the audience loves it because they feel they're in on something. And I, each play is recorded four or five times in front of four or five different audiences during one week. They rehearse for three days and then they're on stage for four or five performances. And then we take the best uh takes from each of the performances and we make it into a final audio recording it takes about start to finish about three months hmm. so uh the actors don't look at each other they're they're acting right into the microphone right um one of the actors in that television piece the spectrum news piece uh said and i, I could imagine he, he said you got to really listen to your fellow actors yeah you're listening this way you know, one of the things I always say to the actors is great to smile, but unless that smile is in your voice, no one is going to know you're smiling when the audio recording is finished. Yeah. And so it's things like that that people have to adjust to. Um, they have to make sure that there are wonderful sounds we make, you know, in, in real life. You know, we make all kinds of sounds when things happen that are nonverbal sounds use all of that you know those are all the things that make the recording rich and interesting so uh, you, you talk about the, the you know um so on on radio you got to have a foley artist right um yeah so, so in that piece the television piece uh we we saw a foley artist uh making all sorts of, of sounds yeah that's uh, that's quite an art yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, in, in the beginning, uh, I think we we asked, you know, there were people who do Foley, for for example, for movies. And we called us upon some of those people to help us. And we have a, a stable of excellent Foley artists who come. They're right on the stage. They've got all their little equipment on the stage, whatever it is. And we've done some amazing things. I mean, I remember once when we were doing recording True West, Sam Shepard's play, and um, there's a, a, a scene in it where everything is like, you know, thrown around. I mean, there's this wild scene. And so we got a huge, huge, not a wastebasket, but kind of a, a enormous... I mean, trash basket. And the Foley artist started throwing dishes and plates and forks and knives and God knows what else into this thing to make that incredible sound. Uh, and so we've done a lot of fun things with Foley. And then we also do, uh, we put in sound afterwards as well, as well as the live Foley. Uh, yeah, post-production. Yeah, we do a lot of post on it. So actors that, that come to you, maybe actors that come to you for the first time, what do they tell you? Because it's got to be a different experience uh, acting for radio. Yeah, people have to learn um, how to take their experience in film and television and the live theater and figure out what works on audio. And it's a learning curve. I mean, people uh, that come to it for the first time uh, are, you know, it's a little disconcerting to just have to look straight out and not look at your fellow actor because, you know, acting is reacting. And a lot of reacting comes from staring into the face of the person that you are, that you are, at, that you are interacting with. If you're having an argument, 
uh, if you're having a love scene, you know, imagine a tender love scene and all you can do is look straight out at the audience and you have to convey that. The kisses, the touching, the sounds that come from your, your being as that's happening. Uh, that all has to be figured out, choreographed, and, um, and it has to work. Yeah. It has to sound right. You know, every, after every uh, performance, we take extensive notes. I take them, the director takes them, the um, sound engineer takes them, and then we talk to the actors. This worked, this didn't work. And, you know, you need to do a little more of this, a little less of this. That sound was a little, that nonverbal sound was a little too loud. This one was too soft. There are all kinds of things that people have to adjust as you go from one take to another, one night to another. People get their notes and they modify their performance. Mm. Yeah, that's, it's, it's certain kind of intensity, right? You have to be <laughs> listening so intently. You have to project in a certain way so in, so intently. Um, and also having to, you know, you know, in a, in a stage production, you know, you have three, six weeks rehearsal, you know, and then you have previews and then you, you know, then you're ready to be reviewed. We do all of this in one week. Yeah. So it's, it's accelerated and you need experienced actors who can do that. Yeah. We want to take a break here soon, but before we do that, I want to hear another clip. Uh, let's, um, we're going to hear a clip from The Graduate. I think uh, most people know the story. Uh, this is Matthew Reese and Kathleen Turner. So Susan Lohenberg, anything you'd like to say before we hear this? No, it was just a thrill to work with both of them. Um, uh, and uh, Matt has since done many, many, many shows for us. And keep in mind that Matthew is a Welshman. <laughs> ah. The perfect all-American boy in this, but he's actually a Welshman. Interesting. Yeah, we'll we'll listen, see if we can detect any accent at all. <laughs> um, so let's hear this, the graduate. Mrs. Robinson, you are trying to seduce me, aren't you? Aren't you? Well, I know. I hadn't thought of it. But Benjamin, I'm very flattered. <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, um, would you forgive me? What? Will you forgive me for what I just said? It's all right. No, it's not all right. That's, that's the worst thing I've ever said to anyone. I've heard worse. Please forgive me. <laughs> I, I, I don't think of you in that way. It's just I'm, I'm all mixed up. All right, calm down. It makes me sick that I said that to you. I forgive you. Can you, can you forget I said that? We'll forget it right now. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's forgotten. Good. Benjamin? Yes. Would you unzip my dress? <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. That's wonderful. I don't remember The Graduate being that funny. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's a really good job there, Matthew Reese and, and Kathleen Turner. Yeah. They, they did it, of course. Uh, on Broadway, and it, I think it really launched Matt's career. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, how uh, how do you pick the plays? What what's the criteria? Do you have a? Is it you? The committee? What do you? Well, it's it's um, you know I I and my associate artistic director are the principal people responsible for choosing the plays. Um, the whole idea of this library is to represent the classics. You know, we've done lots of Shakespeare. We've done the Greeks. We've done George Bernard Shaw. We've done, you know, classic plays. Um, and then uh, important American plays, because there is an emphasis on the American catalog. Uh, the Arthur Millers, the David Mamets, the Wendy Wassersteins, um, then the younger uh, playwrights, Lynn Nottage, Lydia Diamond, uh, Stephen Adley Gerges, all 
and trying to keep abreast of who the most important young people are who are writing. I just did um, a wonderful piece, The Thanksgiving Play by Larissa Fasthorst, who um, just won a MacArthur Genius Award. And she's an American Indian by heritage. She's a fabulous playwright. And it was thrilling to do that. Um, I just recorded Ken Lin's play. Um, uh, he is a very interesting um, Japanese American writer. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, Chinese American writer. Uh, Jeannie Sakata uh, has just done several plays for us. Uh, we've been doing a lot of um, work around the Japanese internment. Uh, during World War II, and she has written two plays for us on the subject. And um, Ken Narasaki has also written a wonderful play called No No Boy, which is also about that period. So we we've, we'd like to hope that we are getting the full spectrum of theater uh, on a on a worldwide classics basis, and also the great plays from the American canon. Hmm. Well, let's, um, let's take a break um, for our broadcast audience here. Uh, Susan Lowenberg is founder and producing director of LA Theater Works, also host of the program. It's heard on uh, many uh, public radio stations, including uh, Utah Public Radio, uh, where you can uh, hear LA Theater Works Friday uh, nights at nine o'clock. Uh, you can hear it uh, over the air if you're in the area or upr.org or on a Utah Public Radio app. Um, and uh, you can hear Access Utah right now. Usually we're running the repeat from the morning. Right now we're live and uh, we're on broadcast and we're also on a Zoom webinar. So if you'd, uh, if you'd like to get a question to Susan Lowenberg, uh, you can do that uh, through uh, Q&A here in the webinar or uh, to our usual Access Utah which is upraxcess at gmail.com. So let's take a brief break. We'll be right back. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah State University Extension 4-H, receiving grants from the Utah STEM Action Center for computer science and robotics clubs in the Washington County School District. The grants will run for three years to assist with the challenges of intergenerational poverty. Hi, this is Nick Forster. This week on E-Town, we're going to hear from two really strong female vocalists, Shamika Copeland and Kelsey Walden. Plus, we're going to hear from a woman who's working really hard on behalf of a problem, particularly in the southern United States, that most of us don't want to think about. And that is all coming this week in E-Town. Tune in Saturday evening at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. Due to his work and professionalism as the band director at Green Canyon High School, Randall Beach has been named Cache County School District's Teacher of the Year for 2020 to 2021. Beach has been teaching since 1990 and has been with Cache County since 2009, first at Skyview High School, then moving to Green Canyon when it opened at the invitation of current principal Dave Swenson. At his time at Green Canyon, Beach has directed the marching band to four straight state championship titles. Welcome back to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This is a special live evening uh, broadcast of the show. And we are highlighting one of the new programs uh, to Utah Public Radio, LA Theater Works, which uh, produces theater for the radio. They're heard on many NPR stations and now on UPR, and we're happy to, to have uh, LA Theater Works on. We're happy to have with us for the broadcast today, which is on uh, broadcast and on Zoom. Uh, Susan Lowenberg, who's founder and producing director of uh, LA uh, Theater Works. You're welcome to get your uh, questions to us through our regular email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can use the Zoom webinar Q&A uh, feature. So it's great to have uh, Susan Lowenberg with us. Um, so I want to, let, let's, uh, let's jump into the next clip. This is a solo performance by actor and author Charlene, Charlene Woodard. Am I pronouncing that correctly? 
Yeah. Anything you'd like to say that is pronounced, it, it's the, the title of the uh, work is neat. Anything you'd like to say about this before we well, hear it? Starlight is an extraordinary uh, performer and uh, writer. Uh, this is part of a trilogy um, that she did. Um, and it examines various stages in her life, in her personal and her creative life. And uh, this is a passage from one of those, one of the three plays in the trilogy. Um, Charlene has, uh, we've worked together for a very long time. And uh, I was thrilled to be able to do this trilogy. All right, let's hear this clip from Neat. On the first day of seventh grade, Mrs. Carlin read the roll. Race the rolls on ball. Here, Seth Tinkleman. Here, Julie Weinstock. Here, Charlene Woodard. Here, I went home and I told my mother all about my new friends at Hackett Junior High School. How they all went to Hebrew school. And the girls wore elegant clothes and how they had no Saturday chores and how their mothers did their laundry and made their lunches. I begged her, oh, I begged her to give me their hairdo. It was called The Flip. I couldn't believe it, but that very next Saturday evening, my mother washed and she pressed my hair and she gave me the flip. With the fabulous swerve bangs that swoop across the forehead and loop around the back of the ear, giving a slight pin curl effect right at the cheek. You couldn't tell me I wasn't Diana Ross and the Supremes. <laughs> That's great. That's uh, actor and author Charlene Woodard from Neat on LA Theater Works. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, uh, it really takes you there. Uh, by the way, um, you said early in the program you performed on live television. Um, did you learn any lessons there that you carry forward to LA Theater Works? Hmm. <laughs> I guess it's know your lines. <laughs> You know, uh, one of the things uh, you mentioned is we do tour, um, and there the actors do learn their lines. Uh, what we do is we take a play from our catalog uh, every year, and we tour to 30 to 40 venues all over the United States, playing a lot of university performing arts centers and civic centers throughout, throughout America. Um, and the actors, we recreate what we do in Los Angeles in front of the audience, except it's much more theatricalized because we're taking a play we've already recorded. And the actors have memorized the lines. They don't use scripts. They do use microphones. We have microphones placed strategically around the stage. We do have um, a, we do the Foley, we kind of divide the Foley up among the artists, but there's a Foley table. We do have lighting. We have projections in the back for more of a visual effect. And um, it's, it's quite an interesting process. It's kind, of, it's kind of theatricalizing what we do in Los Angeles where, and we're able to do that because we're not concerned primarily about getting a good recording, but we're, we're interested in showing the audience how we do it. And so it's, uh, and people wear costumes. So it's much more, it's a certain, it's a very specialized kind of theatrical performance. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that does sound like a lot of fun. Uh, I want to uh, get into uh, talking about how uh, how you've adapted during these times. We've all had to make ad adaptations. Obviously, uh, you know, LA Theater Works um, has had to make some adaptations uh, as well during during the pandemic. Um, so we're gonna hear a clip from a performance, a piece called Deal, 
you want you want to set this up? What what are we going to hear? Okay, deal is a departure for us, and it was a lot of fun, and we were able to do it because we had the uh, pro bono services of a wonderful film director um, in New York and a, a wonderful production company in New York that put it all together for us. We couldn't have done it without. Um, and it's an eight-minute piece. It stars Sarah Drew and Sean Astin. Each of them were in their own living rooms when we did this. We did it on Zoom, um, and it's uh, we had had we had gotten the idea that we wanted to do some sort of a short story. And originally, we thought, oh, you know, some a classic short story, um, maybe an Edgar Allan Poe, something like that. And then I thought about it, and I thought no, why don't we do something contemporary, you know, really contemporary. And I thought, well, I looked around, I thought maybe I'd find something from the New Yorker or I didn't know where. And I sort of reached out to people. And I was on the phone with a friend of mine. And this is, this is going to be a short piece. I needed something that was eight to 10 minutes long. I was on the phone with a friend of mine who is the sort of premier arts journalist in Los Angeles, Barbara Eisenberg. And I was telling her about this project and she's one of my dear friends uh, that I wanted to find a short story. And Barbara laughed and she said, I wrote a short story once. And I said, oh, you're kidding. She said, no. She said, what happened was, she said, I, I was in a writing class and we had to write a short, short story, about eight or 10 minutes. And I wrote mine and I presented it to the class and everybody just dumped on it. They thought it was terrible and criticized me. And the class was over and I walked, I walked out. I took this short story that I'd written and I crumbled it up in my purse. And the next day she said I was having lunch with a, an, the editor of a literary magazine who was a friend of mine. And he said to me, you know, I'm thinking about doing a short story edition. And he laughed and he said, you don't by any chance have a short story. And Barbara said, well, actually, I have one in my purse. So she took this short story out. It was all crumbled up. And she said, I don't think it's very good because everybody in my class hated it. So he took it out and he looked at it and he read it. And he said to her, I think this is fantastic. I'm going to publish it. And he did. So I said, Barbara, where's this short story? She said, I don't know. I said, can you find it? So she found it and she gave it to me and I read it and I said, oh my God, this is our short story. We're going to produce this. And so that's what happened. Well, it's wonderful. <laughs> um, so it's the story of a, a, a let's make a deal fan, right? Who? Yeah, it's it's a, it's kind of a little satire, a little send up of the, let's make a deal, and and a, and a young housewife who is it gets a little too close to the action on her on her screen. <laughs> this is uh, Sean Aston and uh, Sarah Drew, an excerpt from Deal. Let's, let's hear this. Marsha, 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 nothing's in the box said Monty, and he smiled. Marcia felt tears forming behind her eyes. But look, look at what's behind the box. And then the pretty girl moved the box aside to reveal an oven and a refrigerator and a dishwasher. It happened. <laughs> she had made decision. She had won the deal. Oh, tears rolled down her cheeks, smearing her makeup, and she was jumping up and down, hugging Monty, giggling, and shaking her head. <laughs> That's great. And, and, and if you're seeing the, the, uh, the, the video, they're obviously in two different places, the two actors. Yeah. You, yeah, they were in their own living rooms. And I know Sarah had, I said, you know, they, they had obviously, you know, they had memorized it. And Sarah had little pieces of paper all over. I know she had pasted them up all around her, her cam, you know, her, where her camera was so that she could kind of re be remembering the lines if she forgot one. <laughs> but, but you can't tell that. It's just beautifully done, I think. It's beautifully executed. Because they're, they're just wonderful actors. 
you know, they're able to pull that off. Yeah. And if you want to see the whole thing, you can actually see it on YouTube. Oh, you can. Yeah, you can go to. Uh, there's an LA Theater Works YouTube, and you can you can watch the whole eight minute piece, which is terrific. Yeah, well, it's wonderful, and it sounds so good. Yeah. Put them in their houses or what? Yeah, they're in their houses. They yeah. had microphones. I mean, it was great that uh, um, that Sonia um, Mala, who was our director. Uh, was so precise and she made sure that everything that the sound was right that the cameras were right we sent them cameras they had special cameras oh that's wonderful yeah. uh so getting creative during this pandemic times um maybe, maybe now would be a good time to talk about what art does for us i guess always and especially during these times especially a good time to talk about it because the arts community has been hit very, very hard by, by the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's needless to say, I mean, it's been a terrible challenge for all of us. Um, you know, LA theater works was very, very fortunate because what we do is audio. So that you, we could, we could continue that. I mean, obviously we had to cancel our tour. Uh, we had to cancel our live recordings. Everything is recorded in a studio and it's all done very carefully. There are only two actors in the studio at a time and they're in separate booths. And the director is in a separate booth and the recording engineer is in a separate booth. So when we're recording a play of four or five, six actors, they come in sequentially and somebody reads the other characters them and they are reacting and then we put it together it's a very complicated process it's taken us a while to develop it we did our first one i think in in june or july in the studio but all of our recordings are done in the studio now at the moment and um our subscribers have been offered what we call a digital season nine plays they're used to coming and watching us record now they're given recordings to listen to and then live zoom interviews like the one we're doing right now we give them additional material for instance we did a wonderful zoom the other day with some of the founding members of, L of the la theater works radio theater company ed asner stacy keach joe beth williams marcia mason um and they recalled and Richard Dreyfus and they recalled on in this Zoom that we did about the founding of the LA Theater Works Radio Theater Company. So we give those kinds of um, extras to our quote subscription audience. Yeah, it, it's uh, of course LA Theater Works a little more um, able to do that, but still, uh, that's that's it's got to be difficult for an actor have to come in sequentially to. Yeah, it's very difficult, and but they've been able to do it. And we use two of our two of our most seasoned directors have done all the recordings. Normally, we'll have other directors come in and do, uh, but we just use the same two people because it was too difficult to show all the other directors how to how to do this. So the last five plays that we've recorded have been. Re done by two of our directors, Rosalind Ayers and Martin Jarvis, who are English and they're from the BBC and they live here now. And uh, Annalise Erickson, who's our associate artistic director, actually did the, did the last one in the studio. But it's, a, it's such a complicated process that we couldn't train more than two or three people. Well, um, let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll have our last segment with uh, Susan Lohenberg, who is a uh, uh, founder and uh, director of LA Theater Works. They produce uh, theater for the radio. And you can hear LA Theater Works uh, here on Utah Public Radio Friday evenings at nine o'clock. And uh, you can get a question uh, to us uh, here on the broadcast to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, and uh, so we'll be right back after this break. This is Science by the Slice. Why are there so many species of plants? Why do some plants thrive while others don't? 
USU ecologist Noel Beckman is exploring these questions by studying spatial characteristics of buried tree species. Patterns of seed dispersal and seed mortality influence the spatial structure of plant populations and the local coexistence of competing species, Beckman says. By examining these new patterns, scientists learn about the mechanisms that allow different plant species to coexist. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify. After a turbulent transition of power, Joe Biden now inherits many challenges in a divided nation. He's set to be inaugurated on the same stage where rioters overtook the Capitol. I'm Rachel Martin. Join NPR Wednesday for special live coverage of the inauguration from NPR News. Beginning Wednesday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to a special Access Utah evening broadcast. And we're shining a spotlight on LA Theater Works. That's in a theater company. With a, with a difference, with a twist, they do uh, productions for radio. Uh, as you imagine, that actors acting into microphones uh, and a Foley artist. Um, by the way, Susan Lodenberg, uh, do you ever have more than one Foley artist or did usually most productions, one Foley artist can do the whole thing? Yes. Um, so Susan Lodenberg joins us. Uh, she is the founder and uh, producing director of uh, LA Theater Works, and we're glad to have her uh, have her with us. So you made reference, uh, Susan Lohenberg, one of the restrictions, the things you can't do during COVID is tour. So LA Theater Works is a touring company as well. Uh, yeah, we tour. As I said, every every year we take a play from our catalog and we tour it around the country, around the United States. And in 2011. Uh, we were invited to come to China um, and to bring a play there. And we brought a docudrama written by Jeffrey Cowan uh, and, and Roy Ahrens, two very distinguished, um, multi-talented. They're, Jeff is a journalist. He's a lawyer. He's a, a, a major, major figure in, in LA. And, and, and Roy, who sadly passed away was a journalist and they wrote uh if anybody saw the steven spielberg uh film of the pentagon papers story it we did that we did that story but we did it 25 years ago and it is the story of the washington post and the pentagon papers um, after the New York Times published the Pentagon Papers for a couple of days, they were, uh, they had to take down, they were enjoined. And um, someone from the Washington Post, Daniel Ellsberg got in touch with someone from the Washington Post and said, I can give you another copy of the Pentagon Papers. And uh, they continued to publish the Pentagon Papers. And eventually the the, the government, you know, brought, called them into court. And of course they won, which was a great, great, great uh, uh, victory for freedom of the press and free speech. But in any case, it was a very exciting piece. It became one of our signature pieces. It was aired on NPR and all over the country. We took it to Off-Broadway in New York and we decided to take it to China and it was fascinating. Um, we played all of the major performing arts centers in China and then we went back in 2013 and did the play again. And then we played the huge performing arts center in Beijing, uh, steps from Tiananmen. And that was extremely, that was obviously very symbolic. Um, and we toured, as I said, all over China during those two trips. And we ended up, interestingly enough, out of that, we met the folks who ran the Beijing radio network 
which is kind of similar to NPR um, in China. And they asked us if they could uh, air our show. And I said, absolutely. You know, and I said, it airs once a week, we'll send you a play. And they said, oh no, we want to air it every day. So since 2012, they have aired a play from LA Theater Works every day. Wow. And we have over 15 million listeners. Wow. So, and what's interesting about it is we really are at this point, the only real American culture China on a on a regular basis because American centers were basically shut down. Now whether they're going to reopen again under Biden, I don't know. I certainly hope so. Um, but uh, it's been a very very interesting interesting uh, relationship between ourselves and the Beijing Radio Network. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. Let's hear our last clip here. Uh, this is from a piece by uh, China's English language CCTV news uh, on the occasion of the top secret playing in in China. The audience has interesting views on the play, especially given the historically secretive nature of the American government. I was affected by the pride and honor of the American journalists. At the same time, I could feel their struggle. It was tough when they made the decision to report on the top secret papers. It's inspiring for Chinese journalists. Hopefully more plays like Top Secret will make their way to China and deepen cultural understanding. So that's a segment uh, from uh, China's English language CCTV news uh, when uh, Top Secret, the battle for the Pentagon Papers uh, was performed by LA Theater Works uh, in China. So Susan Goldenberg, we just have a, a minute or two left in our, our hour. Um, what's, what's the future of LA Theater Works? Just keep doing what you're doing? Absolutely. We're gonna keep doing what we do. Um, and uh, hopefully when this pandemic is over, of course, we'll be able to tour again. Um, and we will be able to invite our audiences back into the theater to watch us do what we do but um, we're very excited about the future. Um, Dr. Fauci the other day said he thought audiences might be going back into the theater next fall. And we're, we at LA Theater Works and all of our fellow theater um, all over America are keeping our fingers crossed that that is going to be. Let, let's hope so. Let's fervently hope so. Meanwhile, we you know, we're, we're doing our weekly radio show. We're doing our free podcast. We have a huge podcasting schedule. And uh, we, of course, sell our audio all over the world. And we give, we have over 2,000 teachers that we give free audio recordings to on a regular basis. Oh, it's wonderful. Let's continue. Yeah, excellent. Well, um, you can hear LA Theater Works uh, all over on many NPR stations in China as well, um, and on Utah Public Radio. You can hear it uh, Friday nights at nine o'clock, which you can uh, pick up uh, UPR uh, at uh, upr.org. And of course, uh, Utah and surrounding states uh, over the airwaves. And uh, we've uh, very much appreciated having uh, Susan Lowenberg join us for this special Access Utah on broadcast and on Zoom as well. Uh, she's the founder and producing director of LA Theater Works. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, thank you. That, uh, that concludes Access Utah for this evening. Thanks for listening. This is Utah Public Radio, statewide member-supported service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard online at upr.org and on the UPR app.
It's American Roots Live in concert and conversation with New Orleans artists connecting family traditions to new music. Singer, cellist, banjo player Layla McCalla invokes French Creole roots. Then saxophonist Donald Harrison brings soul, funk, and black carnival to jazz on American Roots from PRX. Tune in Saturday evening at 8 here on Utah Public Radio.